I remember leading worship, uh, my last job at a church, and this was right after Dennis got saved, and he's going to share his story today, an amazing story. But Dennis has the world record for the longest worship wingspan ever. We got it. And he loves the front row, and he just gets his long arms out there worshiping, and every time it chokes me up because I see God's faithfulness. A guy that, and you're going to hear his story, no one's here to hear me tell his story today, but God transforming a life, and now he's just wholeheartedly and in full wingspan offering his life and praise to God. So he's going to share his story today. He's a good friend of ours, and then at the end of service, we're going to take a moment and take an offering together, and in addition to our normal tithes and offerings, we're going to have an opportunity to support him. But could you please welcome, as he comes, Dennis Otto. Wow. Look at this. You know what? I'm really humbled and touched. Let me pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you for this day, Jesus, and we thank you for what you are going to be doing today. Jesus, I pray that you would just have your way. In your mighty name I pray. Amen. Well, people, my name is Dennis Otto. I grew up in Hastings in a good family. A good family. We were above average in income. Good mom, good dad. And I'm bringing that up this morning because when I woke up this morning, these two words came to my mind. What if? Now, I know my mom and dad, when I was doing things that you're going to hear about, probably said, what if? What if I did this? What if I had done that? What if this would have happened? But I'm here to tell you the only what if that my mom and dad should have said is what if Dennis made different choices? I'm here to tell you today that whatever you're going to hear today is because of me, nobody else. So anyhow, I was raised in a good home. Started doing drugs about 12, 13 years old. Weed, stealing little alcohol from my folks. And right away, my relationship in my family went down. And it was because of my drugs and alcohol use. Schoolwork started to get in trouble, lost interest in sports. But I did manage to graduate. I graduated in 1976. Started working construction right away. Now I had money come in, coming in, good money that I was able to buy drugs and alcohol. And I started dealing right away because I didn't like paying for drugs. Well, and then also I started getting some minor troubles, assaults, disorderlies, and then I got a DWI. And I got a lawyer and he said, Dennis, go to treatment. Judges like that when you go to treatment before they tell you to go to treatment. So I went to treatment. It was Twin Town up in St. Paul. And what treatment really taught me was that I had a drinking problem, not a drug problem, drinking problem. Because when I drank, I'd get temp I had a bad temper, I'd get into trouble. Drugs never did that, so I decided I'm gonna quit drinking, and I did. And then I also moved after I got out of treatment up to the east side of St. Paul. And I started running with some guys. They were in a small biker club up there, and I started running with them. And basically what we did, we liked to get in fights, we liked to go to bars, tear it up a little bit, and just cause trouble. And then I started dealing again. And I dealt with, 
whatever was in season, you know, weed, hash, speed, cocaine, meth, whatever was in season, I dealt. Well, this went on for a few years. In about 83, I run into this gal named Shelly. We move in together. I'm still doing the stuff I was doing, but we live together. She gets pregnant. 1985, my first son is born, Brandon. That same year, my best friend, who was part of the club that I ran around with, he went down for murder one. He got into a fight and went too far and killed the guy. And it was, I don't know, maybe a week, two weeks after that, I'm in my apartment and I'm looking at my son laying in the crib. And I'm thinking, you know what, this isn't how I was raised. I'm a country boy, I grew up on a farm, you know? So we packed up, we bought a trailer in a trailer park in Hastings, a new one that was going up. I quit dealing and really the drug use went way down. It was more the cocaine and crank was more recreational. You know, I smoked pot because pot's okay, you, everybody knows that. And uh, <laughs> so I continued smoking pot and stuff, but I mean, I was working hard, supporting my family. Shelly and I got married in 86. 87, my other second son, Ryan, is born. Things are going good. Working hard, got a decent trailer, but it was about, I don't know, 88, 89 when I bought my house out in Hampton. Now I'm sure most of you know where Hampton is. And now things were going really good. I became a member of the community. I was the training officer on the fire department, um, the mayor for two terms. <laughs> People always laugh when I say that. I don't know why. I just, but yeah, I was the mayor for a couple terms. You know, but I was a member of the community. I was, I was volunteering. I was doing things. Drug use went even further down. In 1990, my daughter was born. Now I'm telling you what, guys here that have got boys or girls, when you have a girl, you know what I'm talking about. They take a special spot in your heart. And my daughter did. And I thought I had the world by, you know, I had the world. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. But uh, after she was born, my marriage started to get rocky. I didn't know why. My wife was not coming home for two or three days at a time. I'm staying home with the kids, taking care of them. And this went on for three years, and I, I was besides myself because I, I didn't know what I was doing wrong. I really didn't. And it was about three and a half when Danica was like three and a half years old. One night we're sitting there, and I'm watching the news, and Danica's sleeping on my lap like she always did. And all of a sudden, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I looked down at my daughter, and I looked at my wife, and I said, is she mine? She bolted, and I knew right away that my little girl wasn't my little girl. I lost it. And I knew I had to get out of there because I was the type of person that when I hurt, I wanted to hurt somebody else. That's how I dealt with it. So I took off. I went up to Wisconsin. I had a good friend up there. He was a brood of a man because I needed somebody to watch me, babysit me. I needed somebody to make sure I didn't hurt somebody or hurt myself. I come home after a couple days, and I look at Shelly, and I said, Shelly, if I kick you out, 
ones that are going to suffer are the kids. They didn't do nothing wrong. I said, so I'll swallow my pride, and let's work on this marriage. Well, about a month and a half, two months later, she wasn't coming home again. Three months later, she wasn't coming home again. She had another boyfriend. So I filed for divorce. We got divorced in 1995. I kept the house because I could afford to. And I don't know if that was a good, good move or a bad move because I'll tell you what, coming home to that empty house really was killing me. I remember I'd walk around at night looking at... looking at these empty rooms. So I told my boss, I knew we had work up in the Dakotas, we had work in Iowa. I said, you gotta get me out of town, Irv. I said, coming home to this empty house is gonna kill me. So he put me down in Okoboji, Iowa. Well, the second night down there, I went to a strip club with some of the guys from work. And I did something that I haven't done since 1979. I started drinking again. And I started drinking straight Jack Daniels. I don't know, after three or four of them, next thing I know, the bouncer's on the floor and I'm on top of them. I take off, go to another bar, same thing happens. From that day on, my nickname was Psycho and I lived up to it. The thing was, people, I, I didn't care. I didn't care. I was hoping somebody put me out of my misery. Really, I was. So this went on for a few years. Peg, can I get a drink, please? Thank you. This went on for a few years. And then this other drug came along called red phosphorus fluff. I'm telling you what, people, I've done just about every drug there is. This drug was unreal. It made me feel like Superman. And that wasn't a good thing for me to feel like the type of person I was. I started dealing, running around with some rough people. Then about 98, the guy that I was buying my drugs from, him and his girlfriend got arrested. Well, he had enough money to bail himself out, but not enough money to bail his girlfriend out. So he comes to me, you know, I was making good money. And he goes, Dennis, would you help, help me out and bail her out? So I did. And I told him, I said, well, you can't go home, so you might as well, why don't you move in with me till you get back on your feet? So they did. And for doing that, he taught me how to manufacture red phosphorus fluff. Now before, I felt like I was Superman. Now I was, because I'm telling you what, the power that comes with making that drug was intoxicating. It brought a power I could get people to do anything I wanted for that drug, anything. And I abused that power. I'm not proud of it, but I did. I abused that power. Well, then I noticed that there were some bikers that lived across the street from me. And I was always, I always liked running with bikers. They liked doing what I liked to do. Some of them were one percenters. I became very good friends with one of them. He was a patch holder with the club. He ended up living with me. 
Now I'm telling you, these people are in a league all their own. They are a notch above other people. These guys are nuts. So I'm running around with these guys and just getting in deeper and deeper. 2001, I become a target on the Dakota County Drug Task Force. Later that year, was the beginning of 2002, I got sentenced to 110 months in prison. My charges were first-degree manufacturing, first-degree distribution, first-degree possession, and a felon in possession of firearms. When the judge said 110 months, I actually had a sigh of relief because I thought, it's over. Thank God it's over. Because it was like six months before that, I'm talking with Opie. He's the, he was the guy that was a one percenter. I'm talking with Opie, and I told him, I said, Opie, man, I said, I'm just tired. I want out. And he looked at me. He laughed. He said, Dennis, men like you and me, we don't get out. We get dead. So prison saved my life. I really believe that if I'd have stayed on the streets for two, three months more, I'd be dead right now. I was, I was dead already. I just didn't know it. Well, I was not a model inmate. <laughs> I spent a lot of time in segregation. I didn't see the eye to eye with a lot of people, and I let them know that. So one of my buddies in prison, he said, automatic, he called me automatic. That was my nickname. He said, hey, you ought to settle down a little bit. He said, you might be able to get boot camp. And I told Freddie, I said, Freddie, I was classified as a violent criminal. Violent criminals are not eligible for boot camp. And he said, well, just apply anyhow. So I did, and about a year later, I get the letter that I'm accepted. So I settled down a little bit. Well, I walked out of prison October 9th, 2006. Two, two weeks before my 48th birthday. I spent my 45th, 46th, 47th birthdays incarcerated. And I got out two weeks before my 48th birthday. I had prison clothes on and $126 to my name. The county seized all my property, everything I owned. Well, I was going to NA because I had to through the ISR. That's intense supervised release. So I started going to NA. About six months, I meet Patty. Patty's 29, 40, I'm 48. We start dating a few months after that. Spring of 2008, she gets pregnant. And that's when her family finds out about me. <laughs> I was not their first choice. But you know, Patty's family's all Christian, and I was thinking, man, Christians, they're judging me. They don't even know who I am, even though they were judging correctly. They, they didn't. <laughs> My father-in-law and mother-in-law are sitting right here. <laughs> so but anyhow, Caden is born. Shortly after Patty and I move in together. And I'm trying to be a better person. I am. I'm trying to do what's right. I'm working for a non-union construction company making peanuts. I'm trying to do what's right. Yes, I still had anger issues. I still could become violent very quickly. And, but I'm trying. 
Well, after we moved in together, Patty, she started attending River Valley Church again. But she was scared to say anything to me. Well, one night, I'm out to eat with Patty's family. And I'd go to family functions. Nobody really talked to me a whole lot, but I'd go to them. And Patty's brother-in-law, Matt, was sitting across the table from me. Matt Longowan, I know a lot of you people know him, especially his mom and dad know him. <laughs> but he's sitting across the table from me. And Matt looks at me and he goes, Dennis, where are you at spiritually? And I looked at him like, what? <laughs> I mean, who talks like that? <laughs> you know? And I'm trying to think of all these things that come back with him. You know, don't you know who I am, you know, and stuff like that. And all of a sudden, I hear this voice. And it said, be honest. And I paused because I've never heard this voice before. And then I thought, no, that was my imagination. So I started thinking of a good singer again. And all of a sudden, the voice came back, except sounded like he was mad at me this time. He said, Dennis, for once in your life, be honest. So I was. I looked at Matt and I said, Matt, I've been living in hell my whole life. I said, I hope when I die it's better than this. And so all Matt did, he started asking me questions. What do you think of God? What do you think of Jesus? And I said, Matt, I said, the things I've done, the things I've seen, the things I've seen other people do, it's really hard for me to believe there's a God out there that lets this kind of stuff go on. And then I said, if there is a God, I see good people every day that have never done anything like I've done. Yet their child has cancer or their wife gets killed by a hit and run. I see stuff, bad things happening to good people. I said, why would God ever do anything for a man like me? Why? Why would God help me? So we talked. And finally, Matt goes, he goes, Dennis, if I give you a book, would you read it? I'm an ex-con. What do you think we do in prison? So I, I said, yes, I'll read it. So he gives me this book, One Heartbeat Away by Mark Cahill. I read this book, and I went right to my knees and gave my life to Christ. Now, I've heard a lot of people say they really don't, you know, people that have been really raised Christian, that they don't even know when they really gave their life to Christ. I can tell you exactly when I gave my life to Christ. It was March 15, 2010. And the thing is, people, that hole that I've been trying to fill my whole life with drugs and alcohol and women and violence, it was full for the first time in my life. I could feel the love of Jesus. I could feel it when I was looking. I, it was like I was seeing the world for the first time. The next morning, I called Matt. I said, Matt, I did it. And he right away said, what did you do? <laughs> and I told him, I said, I gave my life to Christ. Well, me and him met that day. He took me, bought me my first Bible. I think it was like five days later, I'm sitting at a celebration dinner at Alpha. That's where I've met a lot of you people. And it's just... God started moving in my life. A couple weeks later, I'm ushering at River Valley Church. I don't know, it was maybe a month and a half, two months. Pastor Jeff Kerr does my video testimony at River Valley Church. Now people know who I am. And they're talking to me. I mean, I, I had friends. 
I mean, I know a lot of you probably think, I've got a lot of friends. Well, I'll tell you what, when you don't start making real friends until you're 50-some years old, friends really mean something to me. Because none of those people before were friends. Not one of them ever came to visit me in prison. Not one of them ever wrote me a letter. Not one of them ever put any money on my books. Not, not one of them. Now I had real friends. And things were going good. Patty and I got baptized that summer. September, boy, we better not screw this up. September 11, 2010, we got married. <laughs> next year, was it 2011, Noah, our second child, is born. I should have read a book on that. <laughs> but anyhow, life is going good. You know, I've got friends. I've, and right before we got married, I got a union-paying job. God blessed me with a union-paying job. Now I was making money. 2012, we buy our house out in Apple Valley. Things I've never thought would ever happen again. Things are happening. Went on a mission trip, went to the uh, jungles of Peru in 2014, or 2013 it was. December 3rd, 2014, I'm getting ready to go ice fishing. Anybody that knows me knows I'm an avid ice fisherman. I'm sitting on the chair, putting on my socks, and all of a sudden I get this pain in my chest. And I, wow, this was a serious pain, and I knew it was a serious pain. I've never felt it before. So I thought, oh, man, Patty wasn't home. Caden was in school. Patty and Noah were someplace. So I dialed 911. Tough guys don't call 911. <laughs> and then I think, oh, my goodness, my doors are all locked. If I have to hit that other one, which my thumb was poised over it, I was ready. And uh, I thought I better unlock the doors. So I go to unlock the front door, and I get about 10 feet, and my legs give out. And I go, oh, dang it, now i got to call the other one. So, so I do. The EMTs come, you know, and right away they put wires and stuff on me. Dr. Tom Blee might be able to give you more information on that. But uh, the gal goes, well, Dennis, you didn't have a heart attack. Well, by this time, the pain's gone. So I said, well, I'm going fishing. And she goes, well, Dennis, maybe I think you should come to the hospital. And so we argued back and forth. And I said, well, I feel good. I said, maybe it was just gas. She goes, well, De she goes, Dennis, you collapsed. I said, well, maybe it was bad gas. <laughs> well, then my wife comes home, and I decide to go to the hospital. <laughs> but anyhow, I'm on my way to the hospital. And the EMT says, Dennis, good thing you're coming because your blood pressure is dropping steadily. And I said, wow, okay. So we get to the hospital. They do a CT scan on me. And the doctor comes up and he goes, Dennis, you need to get to the University of Minnesota right now. And I could tell it was serious. So I said, doc, give it to me straight. What am I looking at? And he said, well, if you make it, you've got a fighting chance. And he said, the helicopter's out, so we have to drive you. And I could tell by the look in his eyes, he thought he was talking to a dead man. Well, 14-hour surgery, five days in a coma. I have an aortic dissection. But on the way to the hospital, I'm talking to God. 
And like I say, folks, I, I know I'm dying. I know this. I'm talking to God, and I said, God, this is your plan. I accept it. You want to take me home? Let's go. I just asked. He said, watch over my wife and kids. I said, but if you want me to stay, I will stay, and I'll do whatever you ask. Well, I get up there. They do the surgery. Five days in a coma. For the first, I don't know, two, three months. I don't know if people knew if I was going to live or die. But I lived. <laughs> She's crying because I lived. <laughs> you know, and when I was going through this stuff, my one older son, Ryan, came up to me and he goes, Dad, he goes, I don't understand. You know, I've always been trying to get, talk to my kids about God and Jesus. And my older son came to me and he goes, Dad, I don't understand. Back when you were doing the things you were doing, he said, you were an animal. Hardly anybody could touch you. And he said, now look at you. You can't hardly walk. And he said, you've been doing what's right. He said, I don't understand. And I told him, you know, I'm not sure either, but I'll tell you what I do know. My relationship with God got closer. My wife's relationship with God got closer. I got to see how strong my wife is, something I would never have seen otherwise. Five days in a coma, she's juggling two little boys, but she's sitting at my bedside while I'm unconscious, playing worship music, singing to me. That strength. During the recovery time, I got my pastor credentials through the Assemblies of God. And yes, I had to jump through some hoops. <laughs> but I got them. And I started doing mentoring guys on the side. I went back to work construction. And I started mentoring guys on the side. You know, people hear my story. They want me to talk to their son, their dad, whatever. They want me to talk to them. And so I'm doing that on the side. I was doing a prison ministry with River Valley Church. Last spring... March of last spring, God told me he wanted more. And I'm thinking, God, how am I going to do more? I'm, you know, I'm working all these hours, mending people on the side. And he told me to quit my job. And I just, <laughs> God's got a sense of humor. I just, I mean, because through, our, through the medical stuff, we, Patty and I went into debt. I mean, there, we had a lot of good people helping us, blessing us. But we still went into debt. I wasn't working. Patty was a stay-at-home mom. So last March, we just started putting money back into the savings account. I think we had like $400 in the bank. Now, who quits their job with $400 in the bank with four people in the family? I did. <laughs> <laughs> I talked to a guy that raises ministries. And when I came home, I talked to Patty. And Patty knew who I was talking to and what was on my mind. And I looked at Patty. I said, Patty, I've got a few questions. I said, do you believe I'm a man of God doing the best I can? And she goes, yes. I said, Patty, do you believe my ministry is guys that are lost, guys that are living in the darkness? And she goes, absolutely. I said, well, then there's only one more question. 
And she knew what was coming, and she went and starts going, oh, Bill's this and this and that. And I said, whoa, I didn't even ask the question yet. So she gets quiet, and I looked at her. I said, do we trust God? And right away, she goes off on another tangent. <laughs> she's, she's my conscience sometimes. <laughs> but anyhow, I looked at her. I said, Patty, this is a yes or no question. There's no ifs. There's no maybes. There's no buts. It's yes or no. Do we trust God? And she looked at me and said, yes. And I said, I'm quitting my job. I'm going to start a ministry. And I did. That was last March. My ministry is all in ministries. I mentor men. Actually, what I do is I've got the honor to walk alongside of these men. I get the honor to be with them during high points. I get the honor to be with them during low points. There's three of them out here watching me tonight. Or this morning. I love what I do. All in ministries. I am all in for these guys. Now some of these guys are saved. Some of them aren't. But they know where I am. And they know where I'm pointing at all times. Because I really believe. To battle this addiction. Twelve steps isn't enough. It takes leaps of faith. So this is what I do, folks. And I know there's people out here thinking, I've got to ask this question and tell you. I'm a self-supported missionary minister. So if God is touching any of you, I'm always looking for partners for all-in ministries, whether prayer, finances. A couple months ago, a guy that I'm working with, he'd spent 20 years in the Texas prison. Four years of that was in segregation for killing a guy in prison. But I started working with him a couple months ago, and Jorge asked me, he goes, Dennis, he goes, why do you do what you do? And I looked at him, I said, because I remember what it feels like to be dead. I remember what it feels like to be lost. And it breaks my heart when I see men that are still going through that. Not only does it break my heart, but it breaks his heart. And that's why I do what I do. Thank you for listening to me. You can be seated. Thank you, Dennis. We have a couple things I want to talk about in a minute, but we got to take a moment to just pray. Uh, let's just bow your heads and close your eyes for a minute. We just, you can't hear a story like that and not give an opportunity for people to give their hearts to Jesus. And I know maybe there's people here today, and I'm, you heard that story, and it's time for you to give your life to the Lord. It's time for you to find hope in Jesus Christ. All the things that Dennis said, you know, he had a hole in his life and he finally met Jesus and it was like it was, that was filled. It was like there was purpose, it was, there was hope, there was healing, there was a past that had been forgiven and a future in Christ, a ministry calling. This is what Jesus does, this is what he does. 
in hearts. So I just want to give you an opportunity. Everybody's got their eyes closed, and I'm just looking out there. If it's time for you to give your life to Jesus, just put your hand up right now so I can see it, and then I can pray for you. Just if, if you are wandering, if you are hurting, I see those hands. Thank you. I see those hands. I'm just going to take another minute. I'm still looking out. Thank you. I see those hands. Some of you just need to give your life to Jesus. You've been wandering around trying to figure it out on your own, and it is time for you to let the author of life into your life. So we'll just take another moment. Is there anyone else? Thank you. I see that hand. Oh, let's pray. Lord, we thank you. And so that I'm just going to ask you, uh, if you lifted up your hand, I'm just going to ask you to repeat this prayer after me, and we're going to invite the whole church to say it too. But let's just pray this prayer together. Dear Jesus, I confess that I am a sinner, and I need your mercy, and I receive your salvation. I believe that you died and rose for me, and now I commit my life to you. Amen. Uh, Dennis, thank you. That's um, what a great, just the fact that you came and shared today and people gave their life to Jesus. I mean, that's just a great testimony of what God is doing. So in a moment, we are going to receive the offering, and I'll give more instructions on that in just a minute. But I just want to encourage you today. Um, would you consider helping Dennis with his ministry? Dennis, we, I, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, what a, a unique calling and gifting that God has for him to reach these people, to reach these men who are walking through this, battling addiction, in prison, just wandering the life that he was wandering in darkness. I can't think of anyone else more gifted and qualified and how God is going to redeem his past and now cause that to bear fruit in people's lives. But he needs support and he needs help. Um, and so he's got some people that have helped him on a monthly basis and he is walking the road of faith that we have walked and maybe you've been in that situation where you don't know where the next paycheck is going to come from. So he's walking that road and I want our church to support him. So would you consider being generous today and the ushers are going to come and we're going to take an offering. This is also our regular offering. So here's how we're going to do this. If you have, we recognize some people are tithers or giving to support the ministry of Homestead Church. If you are doing that today, could you make note of that somehow on the envelope? Just say tithe or homestead. If it's going towards our welcome home building campaign, just write building on it in the memo. Just designate it if you want it designated to something. But otherwise, everything else that comes in today is going to go to All In Ministries. So if you want to put some money in, if you want to talk to Dennis after and figure out how you can support him monthly, we as a church are going to do that. We're going to support him monthly. But I want you to consider doing that. Make an investment in the future of these lives lives that he is going to, to minister to. Um, he's been such a blessing to be around our church. We love having you guys here that you've dove in and gotten involved. And another one of my favorite dentist stories is, you know, if you want to get involved uh, serving here at the church, you have to, you know, fill out some stuff. And I got a call one day from one of our administrators and who didn't know Dennis, and she said, um, Dennis Otto failed the background check. <laughs> And I said, he did. <laughs> and she said, yeah, like really failed it. Like, and I said, well, at least we know the system works, right? I mean, that's, 
This uh, and I said, this is not a surprise. This is this is uh, this is a life that God has redeemed from a lot of stuff. But um, so let's pray for this offering. And I just encourage you to be generous today as we wrap up this day. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your power and ability to bring. life and hope and peace, to take people from darkness as you've done with each of us. You brought us out of darkness into your marvelous light, and we thank you. We praise you, and we thank you for the calling that you have on Dennis's life and on Patty's life. We thank you for the lives that they are ministering to as only they can. We thank you that you are taking that past that was meant for destruction and darkness, and you are turning it, and you're allowing that past and that testimony to bring hope to new people, to bring hope to new lives. You're a great God that you can do that. So, Lord, we thank you for what you're doing, and we pray for Dennis's ministry, all in ministries, that you would cause it to flourish and grow and be supported and to have abundance, and, Lord, may we take part in that today. So, stir our hearts for generosity today, as we have been talking about, and we ask that you would bless this offering. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.